Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder podcast with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. And welcome to the listener. Hope you've had a good week and weekend, depending where you're listening to us right now. So let us catch up with our co-hosts. So Andy, let's start with yourself. Um, Max from Crystal Palace uh, has forgiven you for your apology last week. <laughs> and uh, more importantly, United seem to be draw happy this weekend in the capital. Um, but more importantly, how have you been keeping this week, mate? I've been I've been good. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to know my infraction against the Belgian royalty has uh, been overlooked now. So yeah, it's all good. We'll try and move on. And Craig, key question for you: Have you taken off your top and been dancing to Sweet Caroline yet? Uh, hmm. not, <laughs> not yet, but on Saturday at four forty-five, you may catch me on the street. Dancing this week, Caroline. But yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Works busy as always. But after Rangers' result on Wednesday night, I am. I'm very happy. And what about yourself? How are you? Good stuff. Yeah, not too bad. It's been uh, quite a pleasant day today, despite the fact it's been quite busy and hectic at work. But yeah, no, in a good mood and getting ready for this pod. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. So guys, we've got quite a lot to cover. I'm conscious that we've got not a lot of time, but lots of questions also flooded in for us. So um, let's start off in the Premier League. Um, and I suppose the big story that happened this week was around the refereeing decisions. And one of the key questions I put to you guys in our WhatsApp group was actually, has refereeing standards become worse as a result of VAR? And we saw kind of two examples of this happening. Um, I suppose the main one we should really shout about is Lee Mason with the Brighton-West Bromwich-Albion match, uh, where he completely screwed up a free kick decision um, by allowing initially Lewis Dunk to take a free kick and then immediately blowing it because he realised that the goalkeeper at the time wasn't ready or wasn't prepared. Then had to revert to VAR after initially kind of looking like he'd given a goal, went to VAR then decided against it and went to a free kick, which everyone was completely baffled. But then, Andy, obviously you had a scenario in the Chelsea match where a ball seemed to hit Hudson-Odoi in the most unnatural places. And yeah, what came out of that wasn't necessarily that situation. It was more the comments that came out. So it's been alleged that um, Harry Maguire's being told by a referee that if he'd actually let that decision run through, then he was going to be in for tons of abuse as a result of that, which just seemed to have a lot of cowardice in terms of his stance point. So really difficult one, but let's start off by kind of tackling the main question, which is, has refereeing standards got worse as a result of VAR? So let's start with yourself, Craig. What was your thoughts over the weekend and what was generally your thoughts of refereeing standards in general being ruined by VAR? I think your your first question um, over the weekend, the referees made the wrong decision on both counts. I, I think I don't understand why um, Mason has had to go to VAR to look at when he blew his own whistle when he allowed it to go. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was what I was watching. He's obviously made made an absolute arse of that. And then the Hudson Adoy handball. I don't necessarily agree with the handball rule, but under the rules that we've got, that is a handball. And what is VAR for if it's not to make those type of calls? So, absolutely, the two weekend decisions were wrong. In terms of quality of refereeing standards, it's just adding another layer of complexity and complication. 
Uh, when referees made the wrong decision, the, the viewers at home would see it, yeah, that's a wrong offside, etc. And they're just bringing in this drama, this added complication, drawing lines in the park. And I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that if a VAR check takes longer than 30 seconds, then it's mm. not a clear and obvious error. So allow it. if you have to draw lines in the park and it's his armpits offside or things of that nature, then then it's not a clear and obvious error. And that's what VAR was for. And you, you ask yourself the same question, uh, Adam, but it almost feels like the game would be a lot cleaner um, and there'd be less controversy if VAR was removed, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. And Andy, what was your thoughts just in generally about... Lee Mason's decision, not just the Man United incident? I think what I feel about the referees over here is that there doesn't seem to be much of a willingness to admit if they've got it wrong. Mm. Um, I think that's the biggest problem with some of the referees. You know, if you look at Lee Mason, look at Mike Dean, you know, they are, how to put it politely, quite strong minded people. Um, they, you know, they want to. They seem to be in this mindset of once they make a decision, they've got to stick with it. Um, you know, and they don't seem to have be able to turn around. You go, you know what? There's been a mistake made here by myself. I just need to go back and review it. It doesn't seem that like the communication could be a lot, lot better. Like the standard, the the level of respect. You know, there's been a lot of big campaign recently about the respecting of the referees, which you know I agree. Like they don't deserve the dog's abuse that they get in many cases, especially at amateur level. And I've played at Sunday League level, some of them do get some bad abuse. But I think to an extent, especially at elite level, it works the other way around as well. Um, it, a lot yeah. of it just seems to be like, the communication just seems to be shut up and go away. I don't have to explain myself to you. Um, now, Bill, I was watching a few clips recently, of, obviously in Australia, they're mic'd up. And... Yeah. So if you're going to go with VAR, you might as well go full hulk with it. You go, if we're going to have VAR, we're going to have all of these digital aids, let's go further with it. Because if you think about, you know, the American sports like baseball, uh, American football, obviously you've got football doing it like in Australia. You've got uh, rugby, which has always been mic'd up um, and other sports. And they seem to find it absolutely fine no problem at all the, the managers know what's going on the crowd knows what's going on the TV, people watching at home on the tv knows what's going on and although um, you might not necessarily agree with the decision at least you understand why so i think the frustration from players and managers is there's no accountability if a player has a bad game or a manager or a team has a bad game they go out in front of the cameras and explain it and go this is why. But if a referee makes a bad decision, I think what didn't help with the Lee Mason thing is that suddenly the next day he had an injury, uh, which just seemed, maybe he does, yeah. but it just seemed awfully convenient. Um, and so I think the, you know, the, the referees, um, they're not helping themselves. Like, you know, they had the referee should just be able to go, actually, that was a mistake. We're going to drop in for a game and do that. And um, I think I saw the argument the other day that maybe referees aren't paid enough. So uh, Premier League referees, for instance, get paid like a, a basic career of like 46 grand a year and then about £750 each game that they referee beyond that, which, you know, to... In general standards, is decent money. Uh, but I guess if you're talking Premier yeah. League football, where you've even got teenagers on like 50, 60 grand a week, um, maybe it's leveling out a little bit. 
Um, so that could be part of the solution. In terms of the specific decisions themselves, um, obviously the Lewis Dunkel was just a bit of a mess. Um, you know, just I don't know what you know with the visual aids of VAR that he has, you should have been able to make a much clearer decision. Um, and the Chelsea one, I mean, I was absolutely fuming because um, you know, unless you're a fucking T Rex, your arms shouldn't be there. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, I don't care. Oh, maybe it was away from goal and all that kind of stuff, but his hands were in the natu- on the unnatural position, and you put his hand to the ball. Um, if you know, if that is, it's not even like it hit his arm or his shoulder. It's his actual hand. <laughs> <laughs> and the referee was like, nah. And what I found interesting about that is um, obviously Shaw probably didn't get the PR piece, the PR briefing during the week from the United's media team because he dropped everybody right in it, uh, which I thought was funny because he came out on camera and said, well, the referee was afraid to give it because of the controversy it might cause. And that's not the sort of interview you get. So needless to say, after that, the United PR machine went into overload uh, Ed Woodward's obviously got on the blower. You know, Harry Maguire's gone, oh, I didn't say that, heard nothing. Uh, Solskjaer just went, Solskjaer probably didn't help the situation by going, well, ever since, <laughs> ever since, ever since Klopp uh, Lampard started moaning, we've had nothing. And I think he's probably got a point in that, to be honest. Um, and then, yeah, it was all over the paper that he might get banned and things like that. And in the end, nothing happened. And I thought that was telling because normally if a player says or a manager says something like that, they, they get charged with putting the game into dispute. And, um, yeah, they get banned for a few games. You know, I think it happened to Espirito Santo when you questioned the integrity or the ability of a referee. And I thought it might happen to Luke Shaw, but what was interesting, we didn't go any further with it. Um, and I, I'm just hypothesising here, but to my knowledge, uh, the, they have access to the audio that the referees have during the game. Um, and I think if it had got to that kind of instance where they had to go to a hearing, they would have to have played that audio. Now, if the FA were the players in the wrong, he's put the game into dispute, nothing of the sort happens, I reckon they would have gone down that route. But it's interesting that they haven't. So, again, it's just a hypothetical point of view. Um, but it, it does make you think how much, the, how I think VAR is making referees scared to make a decision. Um, so I think there needs to be a bit more accountability of it. If we are going to stick with VAR, then we need to get to a point where, you know, we can hear it on the TV. And, you know, I get this whole argument about players swearing and stuff like that. But as far as I'm aware, uh, football players that are playing in Australia are also human um, and doing the same stuff. So, I don't, you know, I think with, if players knew that what they were saying were being recorded then it can make a difference. And I think what was also interesting was that as the referee was at the monitor in United-Chelsea game, both, especially the Chelsea players, but also some of the United players, were literally right behind him. You know, you have to be a little bit stronger there and go, right, if you don't if you don't fucking do one, yellow card, yellow card, yellow card, they'll soon disperse. So, yeah, I think yeah. there's a lot of, there's not a single answer to the problem that they've got. Um, if you're going to stick with VAR, they're going to have to come up with a few different ways of doing it. Otherwise, as Craig said, just scrap it and just accept that referees are going to make errors. Um, 
because as, you know if you think about the pre-var days literally every single week we were going they need help for not making the right decisions so it's a case of what do you yeah. want do you do you give them the tools to make the right decisions or do you just go fuck it and let human error take over so craig i know you're looking to jump in yeah or i like andy's idea of, of referees potentially being interviewed after games but maybe they're not media trained or they're not really paid enough to do that and I accept that but what you could do is a, a happy medium is you could publish the referees match reports so a game finishes on a saturday afternoon by mm. let's say the, the tuesday morning wednesday morning the fa produce published the match reports for every game it says this is what happened in the game this is the referees because the referees will have to explain what they've done and why they've done it in the match report so maybe not drag them in front of sky at five o'clock on a saturday night and, and really give them that grill and at least they yeah. in four days time when everyone's calmed down you'll get to see the match reports and so our fans can look through and go oh well i agree or disagree and it may be a happy medium rather than, than dragging them in front of the cameras just one of the questions that i had for you two was um do we think maybe var should be minimized in terms of how it's utilized because i feel like it's almost every decision is being antagonized by var and you're starting to see that where a referee is kind of waiting for play to carry on before they actually make that decision. And obviously what we've noticed down in the championship level um, is those referees that are used to that kind of VAR element are getting a bit lost at that level because there's no VAR at championship level. So they are having to realise, oh, damn, I've got to actually make a decision here. Whereas, you, you know, they're used to the Premier League where it's kind of very stop-start, stop-start for everything right now. And it seems to be ruining the flow. It seems to be ruining the way that the game tempo is going. And you can see it by the goal celebrations because even the players don't know whether they should celebrate anymore. And it's lost that bit of edge to the game now. So um, get your thoughts on it, Andy. Again, do you think VAR should be minimised? Well, yeah, I think um, they could do what we're doing, say, cricket. Uh, tennis for instance where the captains of each team is able to you know appeal a decision they get you know say three appeals over the 90 minutes so you know if the cap and that would you know if five or six players are going look this is a really bad decision the captain of the team should be able to go actually do you want to have a look at it and they'll have a look at it and if it turns out the referees made the right decision then fine they've lost that appeal um, and it's the onus goes less on the referees and more onto the players. So, you know, if the players start wasting decisions just for shits and giggles, and then an actual serious one happens and they've used up their allowance for it, that's not the referee's fault to an extent. It's the players for not yeah. judging the situation correctly. So maybe that's a good way of switching the accountability aspect of it around. And Craig, your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I agree with, with um, whatever Andy said there. I think I would like to see a, a similar sort of process to what they do in tennis or in the NFL in America. In the NFL, uh, American football, uh, every single touchdown is checked. Is checked the replay. The, the team, the officials check that. And each coach also has X number of challenges per half. So I would quite happily see... Um, a process within football that says, right, whether it's the manager or the captain or whoever that is, to say, okay, you've got three challenges per 90 minutes, but we will check every single goal 
So you're not micro-analyzing every single offside, etc. But if a striker scores and your captain thinks that was offside, then you'll challenge that. And if if that's proven, then I think that'd be a happy medium. So rather than scrapping the technology, bringing mm. in something that doesn't disrupt the game. Because I've watched football all over Europe this season and England seems to do it what kind of worse than anyone else where there's these big I think Spain and, and Italy and Germany have had it a little bit longer which naturally helps but it seems to be like you know, there's games where you're eight minutes in and you've had a four minute break because they're checking some some nonsense offside so uh, yeah, I would like to see a, a system at least trial it um, yeah. in a number of games that set or why don't try it in the last four games of the Premier League season if the league's pretty much done anyway mm. and, and then try it and just say listen how's it going to look but we can't we can't go on the way as it is starting to sort of ruin football and it's ruining the enjoyment of I was even like it in the Europa League where we had VAR where your team scores and you just kind of well that, that sort of sort of nervous wait to see whether or not it was actually a goal and it, it has to stop but yeah so Adam what's your thoughts on it then on, on VAR I almost feel like we should reduce what we use VAR for so it almost feels like we we overcomplicated it a bit and we should be kind of using it to kind of say right referee has a decision but if there are certain decisions for example where it's very hard for a referee because there's loads of players in front of them or for example it's something that's happened behind the back that's where those scenarios should be used but also i feel like we should minimize how it's used i mean i think sometimes what does the linesman do these days because they I can't really call like offsides anymore. When they've got this goal line sort of situation where has a ball crossed the line, again, there doesn't seem to be that clarity. Even on penalties, you see goalkeepers coming off their lines and you're like, you're X amount yards away and you can't see it. So I question sometimes <laughs> what they actually do. But if we think about the refereeing aspect, I almost feel like we've overcomplicated it and not giving them enough guidance to kind of say, this is the ways you should be using it. And this is how it's there to implement and help you guys. Because right now it seems to be very stop start or they get triggered by the fourth official that to say, you know, have a look at this. There is elements that I think like the A-League where we've had these examples shown on Twitter, where it seems to be working perfectly because they're getting decisions pretty much spot on even if a referee's made the initial kind of call and they realize they've made a mistake um but yeah i do feel like we almost have to go back a step and reassess where we want var to actually influence the game because for me things like those kind of goals going through but the players aren't able to actually enjoy that moment seems to ruin it not just right now but i mean even before covid hit we saw stadiums where people were just like, what the fuck is going on? Has it actually been called? You know, no one seems <laughs> to have a clue. And you're almost waiting like three minutes. That's a long wait just to be called, whether it's a goal or not. Yeah. So it seems like we should take a step back, reassess where we want VAR. And it, it almost feels like we deliberately did it because there was too much pressure. There's too much money being flown at the Premier League. That's my thoughts. But... Yeah, while we stick to the theme of that topic, Andy, obviously we had Chelsea, Man United, nil-nil. Quite a boring game, if I'd be brutally honest. But it almost felt like both sides were trying to counteract each other to make sure they didn't concede. Um, what was your thoughts on the game just in general? And did you feel like Man United maybe lost a chance here to kind of gain some momentum going forward? 
Yeah, I feel that since United got battered 6-1 by Tottenham, they see, they've sort of gone into their shells too much. You know, if you look at all the big games we've had, you know, Manchester derbies against Liverpool, obviously against Chelsea, like, he's sticking with his, obviously, the back four of, uh, you know, the usual back four, you know, how Lindelof, Maguire, uh, Shaw, and then Wan-Bissaka uh, at right back. And then the two, you know, the McFred partnership, as I call it, with McTominay and Fred in there. Um, and then it's just, you know, in terms of the creative side of things, You've just got Bruno, Rashford, Greenwood, um, and obviously, you know, James has been starting a bit more. And now, what's that? If you're a really good, well coached team like Chelsea with lots of good players, you they know that if you mark Bruno Fernandes out of the game, you basically stop Manchester United because there was a stuff that came out after the game that. Bruno Fernandes only received the ball seven times in the whole game for Fred and McTominay. They're meant to be the water carriers who are taking it out of defence, feeding it to the forward lines and giving it a bit of an easier transition. But the rival just hitting it long. Um, Fred is one of the worst, cannot pass the ball to save his life. Unless it's a five-yard ball sideways, he can't shoot, he can't pass, he can't dribble, he can barely tackle, and I don't really know what he does in midfield, to be honest with you, but he's there. He runs around a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think um, so that isn't helping. The lack of rotation isn't helping as well. So I think what, you know, I don't think any manager goes out there not wanting to win a game of football, but what seems to be happening, especially with sides playing each other in like, the top six, is because... You know, City are going to win the way, run away of the league. It's kind of done now, but the top four is kind of still relatively open. So there seems to be, this, when they get to the last 10, 15 minutes of these games, may, I think it's subconscious. They kind of feel, actually, is a draw that bad? Um, and that seems to stop managers from really, really going for it. Uh, so I think, you know, if you look at United, they've got, you know, Ahmad Diallo on the bench. All right, he's a kid. And uh, they're both kids, but they're both attacking players. Like, if you really, really wanted to go out and win the game, you you bring them on, you attack. Uh, but no, there doesn't seem to be that willingness to risk losing a game in order to win it. They just go, no, eh, no draw, it's yeah. okay. Um, so yeah, it was, but it wasn't that much. wasn't that particularly great, to be honest. I think I don't think either team really deserved to win it. I think United should have had the penalty um, all day long, and that maybe would have changed the dynamics of the game. But yeah, I think both of them were quite happy with it nil-nil in the end. Before I move on to Chelsea, um, Craig, there seems to be this kind of element where the media are focusing a lot on Bruno Fernandes and the fact that he's not contributing in the big games. Do you think that's a bit harsh? Yeah, I do. I think it's really harsh. I think... You look at, and Andy's absolutely right. When you've got a tactically astute manager like Tuchel or like a Pep or you know even an Arteta in some senses, mm. when you when you play against Manchester United and you're playing against them on on the Saturday afternoon, your whole team thought that entire week would be about their threats. And you're looking at pace from Rashford and Bruno Fernandes, KM creativity. And what do you do? And Andy's absolutely right. If you can put one or two men man marking on Fernandez, stop him turning and running your defence. You're not you nullify 60, 70 percent of my chances of creativity going forward. I think it is unfair. I think what Manchester United need 
really is another, like Andy says, another midfielder who is creative and can take some of the heat off of um, Fernandez. We've seen it with a much, much lesser of an example, but with Eze and Saha Palace. Palace yeah. used to be so easy to play against because Zaha was the only attacking threat. Double mark him, job's good. When you introduce Eze, it's left and right, two problems, and now you can't double mark. I think Manchester United needs some more of that. And what's really strange is they've got Donny van der Beek on the bench, and I think Donny van der Beek in games where you actually want to go and win a game, don't have your double pivot holding midfielders. You don't need both of those. Yeah. Have a Donny van der Beek who will play as a more of a number eight rather than two sixes. And you might start to take some of the attention away from Fernandez onto another player like Van der Beek. Manchester United, Andy's right again. Um, it seems like after that thumping from Spurs, they've got a real fright. Um, mm. we, we, we lauded Manchester United after the return from lockdown about their attacking field and what a good attacking side they were. It seems that they're really against big teams that can threaten them. They're really kind of starting to play within themselves. And I think Manchester United mentally are now saying top two, top three would be fantastic. And yeah. they just don't want to lose any ground to the big rivals. So they're looking at games like Chelsea, games like Man City. And I think Man City game on Saturday will be exactly the same, uh, really, mm. or Sunday. I think they'll go in there not to lose, not to lose any ground, um, and then just beat everyone below them and, and finish top three, I think is what their aim is now. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and I think um, with Donny van der Beek, I think part of the reason why he's not getting game time is because... Manchester United have been so poor defensively. The reason why he plays two defensive midfielders is because the back two aren't dominant enough behind him and they haven't got a dominant enough keeper behind those back two to make them feel confident. It all starts from the back, really. Um, and I think uh, I'll touch on Dean Henderson when I ran the Palace game in a bit, but I feel that he... Is a more is a better suited keeper for what United need at the moment. Um, and I think as soon as they get a centre back that can complement Maguire, well, because let's be honest, Maguire's not getting dropped. He's eighty million quid. He ain't getting dropped and sitting on the bench. So you have to find somebody that will work with him. Um, and until they do, yeah. I don't think Ollie's going to have the confidence to play a less defensive minded midfielder alongside. McTominay, I think ideally you drop Fred, you play someone like Pogba or Van der Beek in place of where Fred would be, and suddenly you would have a more fluid side. It's not a coincidence that since Pogba's injury, you've lacked creativity. Um, and with Van der Beek, that's a really weird situation, that one. I, I get the impression that Solskjaer doesn't fancy him. Obviously, he watches him in training, um, so you know, we don't know what goes on, but it just seems odd that a player of his quality who's played to the standard that he has has not had more opportunities. We'll briefly just move into Chelsea. So, Craig, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. A lot of Chelsea fans seem to be a bit frustrated that Tuchel didn't take the game to Man United, especially on some of the um, lengths of play that they were doing against Man United. Um, do you share that? Or do you think that's, a bit, again, a bit harsh? Because personally, I felt that was a bit harsh, given that... He's solidified Chelsea. They're back in the top four, whereas beforehand they were nowhere close to that. So I actually feel that he's building some form right now and he's still trying to find his best 11, potentially. I think you have to separate it into two points. I think you look at Tuchel's overall job since he's come in has been fantastic. He's really steady with that ship, started collecting points, uh, sorted the defence out and defending well. But if you look to the Manchester United game in isolation, I think if you're at home against a Manchester United team, you know are going to 
play two defensive midfielders as an example and try and be tight at the back and are not going to offer a lot going forward. If I was a Chelsea fan thinking we're going to get them coming to our our home ground, I would expect a bit more from them. Um, but you know, Tuchel, it's, it's going to take time. It's going to take time, and he has mm. he has got them better. But yeah, I don't disagree. I think they probably should have should have taken it a bit more to Manchester United. Yeah. I'll just cover off some of the other results that happened over that weekend. So Leicester lost 3-1 to Arsenal. Maybe a bit of a surprise, but interestingly, Arteta said afterwards that he felt this was more his kind of team and his philosophy. So sharing that kind of style of football. Can't really buy into that just yet. Um, But another game, obviously Spurs beat Burnley quite comprehensively 4-0. Bale was on fire, as were Son and Kane. Um, guys, just quick question: Would you sign Bale currently as it stands, or would you like give it till the end of the season before you made that decision, Andy? I'd give it to the end of the season. Um, I think he, the problem is because of the amount of money Bale is on, it does make it a more difficult decision. And ultimately, it has taken him what five months <laughs> to get going. Uh, maybe that's yeah. part of it down to Mourinho being reluctant to put him in the team, but. I watched that game against Burnley and he was, you know, different class. Uh, that ball, that assist he put in for Kane was absolutely brilliant. His finishing was, you know, back, you know, because he is a very, he is a good finisher. He's got a hell of a strike on him. Um, and he was even sort of, he looked fitter, like he was running with pace. Uh, and I think a fully, if they can have a fully fit Gareth Bale for the rest of the season, I think they might at least try and bring him back on loan. Uh, so I think Madrid just want him off the books, <laughs> whether that's on loan or permanent. I don't yeah. care at this point, uh, as long as he's not coming back to Madrid. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's part of mainly down Gareth Bale. If he can keep himself fit, keep himself playing, uh, and has a good Euros with um, Wales, then who knows? But it's consistency. You know, scoring a couple of goals against Burnley is one thing, but I think if he starts doing it. In the bigger games, that Spurs that matter to Spurs, like you know the Carling Cup final, uh, or you know return legs against uh, like Liverpool, etc. Then yeah, who knows? I think it's it's an open question at the moment. I think he start he's giving himself a chance because yeah. if, if you asked me that same question even a month ago, I'd be like absolutely no chance. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. What are your thoughts, Craig? Uh, I would need to see a lot more than a couple of goals against Burnley to to justify that. And you're right, he has started to put in performances, particularly against Wolfsburger in the Europa League and then Burnley. But context is important. Wolfsburger were the lowest-seeded team in the Europa League. They're not particularly good. And then Burnley at home is, is a game that Spurs should be winning comfortably anyway. So he's right, he looks fitter, he looked interested. It was definitely his best performances he's come back. But, and he's right, it's taken five months to get there. He's probably earned mm. about six million quid in that time. So, yeah, good signs of, of progress, but I'd want to see a lot more before forking out a, a permanent transfer fee. And uh, Liverpool won 2-0 against Sheffield United, whereas also Everton kept the pressure on them by winning against Southampton 1-0 as well. So that really keeps right. it tight at the top seven at the moment. Right. But we'll move on to a team that we haven't really mentioned on this pod, and that's Man City. Now they've gone 21 games straight winning and they go into this Manchester derby being the form side. Um, But yeah, I mean, again, phenomenal kind of run they're doing right now, Uh, you know, grinding out a 2-1 win against West Ham. 
but they comprehensively beat Wolves. Uh, we had a question from George from the Blues Brother podcast asking, do we think as a pod that City will win all four trophies this season? Um, it's a real big task, um, especially as Champions League is the one that they've been gunning for for quite a long time. But Andy, what's your thoughts? Do you think they've got it within them, given that they have got quite a good depth in their squad right now? I mean, every fibre of my being wants them to not do it. Uh, but if you look at it objectively and you look at the squad they've got, I mean, a lot was made out of their bench that they had the other day, which is worth 300 million quid. And I, I know a couple of City fans on back home and stuff. Um, and, you know, they've always been of the argument, well, Manchester United have spent money, we've just spent it better. And, you know, I can sort of see their point in that. Um, they've got two, well, you know, they've got two world-class Right backs, they've got three or four top class centre backs. You know, they've got a very good, you know, world class goalkeeper. Like they've got world class players in every single position. So if De Bruyne drops, you know, whereas with United, Fernandez drops out. If De Bruyne drops out for City, fine. They've got Foden. Um, you know, they've got Gundogan on good form. You know, if Aguero's injured, they've got. Gabriel Jesus to go in or Sterling could go up front. They've just got so many options. So I think it's within them to win. Um, certainly all the domestic trophies, I think they will win that. I think the Champions League will still be a big ask um, because they do have a habit of overcomplicating it, the Champions League. I mean, they lost to Lyon last year. They lost to Monaco previously. Um, and also, I think when they still come up against the likes of a, you know, a Bayern Munich, a Real Madrid... Um, you know, a different class in opposition to what they're playing at the moment. Um, I think they will come unstuck because as much as they've won the games, uh, they have, you know, they have had an easier fixture list. So, yeah, I think they'll win domestic trophies, but the, the quadruple, the Champions League specifically, might be a bit too far for them. But it wouldn't be a huge shock at the same time if they got to the final. And Craig, you fancied them for the Champions League. So, in your head, do you think they've got it within them to do all four? It's certainly shaping up like that. And if you look across sort of Europe's top leagues, they're, they are the informed team. Like, like you said, you know, 12 or 20 games in a row, one English um, record. I think they'll definitely win the domestic treble. I don't think there's any team in England that can really do that. But I think the Champions League is the hardest trophy to win in world football forget the Euros forget the World Cup I think the Champions League guys when you get to the quarters there aren't any really bad teams um, and over a two-legged affair you never know what can happen but I did back them a few weeks ago and I would if I had to put 50 quid on it now I would I would still back Man City and Andy's right they've got not only they've got a world-class team they've also got a world-class backup or internationalist in, in almost every position I reckon the Man City B team could probably finish top six this year they're, they're, they're that good in the squad depth so I wouldn't put it past them. And like I said, when I when I tipped them to win it, I'm looking at the table now, 14 points clear with 11 games to go. So they only need seven more wins to win the league. Mm. I can quite easily see them, you know, having this wrapped up over the next few weeks, all but mathematically, and then potentially rest a few players in the league and really, really have an attack on the, the Champions League this year. And Andy, before we leave the Premier League, we had a question around Dean Henderson, and obviously you said you were going to allude back to it. Going into this fixture... Would you have De Gea in goal or Henderson? And the question that we had sent in specifically for you was, if Henderson was to leave, who would you, as in Man United, replace him with? 
Well, so addressing, yeah, I think with that, if Henderson was to leave, I think that would be the intention of keeping De Gea in goal. So if, if Henderson leaves, there, there won't be a replacement. It would just be to solve, in their mind, a problem of having a keeper who doesn't want to be second choice to send them to somebody else, I keep the De Gea goal. Because with the wages that De Gea is on, it's going to be very, very difficult to find a buyer. And then you'd have to find another keeper anyway. And United aren't in any way organised enough to be able to do stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it'd either be a straight transfer out with no replacement. I think in general, um, I think the opportunity has kind of presented itself now because unfortunately, David De Gea, he's going, it's been reported by quite a few journalists in the MEN and the Athletic that he's going to miss the next few games. He's gone back to Spain for personal reasons. So that opens up an opportunity um, for Henderson. Um, I think last night was quite an important one because he didn't have very much to do. Uh, but the best chance of last night fell to a Crystal Palace player. He came out of his area quick as anything and blocked it. Um, and I think he does offer something a little bit different to what De Gea does at the moment. I think, you know, when it, when it comes to the corners of free kicks, he comes out for them aggressively, whereas De Gea tends to stay on his line and lets defenders deal with it, um, where he just comes out and catches it. And, you know, he comes out of his goal a bit more. I think he's willing to take a few more risks. Um, he is quite, by all accounts, arrogant. Uh, whether that's in the uh, Jordan Pickford arrogant exceeding ability measure or the um, Manuel Neuer level of arrogance and ability, well, it's yet to, <laughs> we're yet to find out. Uh, but I think he deserves a run of games. A lot of fans have been calling him to give a run of games. And it's games like, you know, against City and we've got Spurs coming up as well. Those are the kind of games we'll find out what kind of keeper he is. Because uh, I think the last English keeper that we gave him running games to was Ben Foster back in like 2010. He had a good running games at the start of the season when Van der Sar was injured. It turned out he wasn't quite up to it, and that was that. Um, I think Henderson has a higher potential. Um, so, yeah, I think it would just be a case of him taking the opportunity he has in the few games that he's going to have now of the hair out because he'll get some league games. He's getting the cup games as it is. So the onus is, is on him to sort of perform. Um, and then that still leaves the question of what do you do in the summer? Because if Henderson performs and, you know, doesn't lose his place, Solskjaer and the United manager are going to have to do something because you either A, have an unhappy goalkeeper who feels as though he should be playing as first choice in Henderson, or you have a highly paid 325 grand a week goalkeeper in De Gea on the bench, and none of those are viable solutions, really. Um, so I think which whatever happens, one of those keepers will be leaving in the summer. I think what happens between now and May will just dictate which one. Right, we'll move into Italy. Um, Craig, we saw a number of results come through over the last few days, but we've also got to cover some shenanigans in Inter Milan as well. So we'll start off with Roma. Obviously, you guys started off on, I think it was Sunday, against AC Milan, where you guys lost 2-1. Um, highlights really Jordan Fatou's goal for Roma exquisite really I have to say in terms of finish but it was Rebic who was quite feisty in his attack that really 
I sort of saw a different side to him, certainly. And I think more kind of something for a Chelsea fans to be worried about is the form of Tomori as well. Um, outstanding in that match. And um, Maldini has been quoted by Fabrizio Romano uh, saying that uh, the buy-on clause is quite substantial, but they are seriously considering this. But um, Craig, before yesterday's result, I think there was a few question marks about whether Fonseca would last the rest of the season because going by that match alone, there seems to be a lack of fight. And I don't know whether that's the players or whether that was the style of tactics. But yeah, it's quite worrying to see kind of Roma get to that position and then drop off. I know yesterday they won against Fiorentina, but are you concerned by this indifferent form that Roma are producing right now? Well, certainly I'm worried, Adam. And you're right, Roma beat Fiorentina last night, but that's what Roma do. Um, I watched the game on Sunday. I thought Roma were okay without being great. Um, you're right, Rebic's winner was, was a great goal. I thought Mkhitaryan potentially could have had a penalty in the second half, so it could have gone either way. But that's what Roma do. Roma beat the jobbers. They beat the teams they're supposed to beat. And when they come up against teams or fellow competitors for top four positions, they, ju- they just fold. And I've written down some results here um, I'd just like to read out for you guys. So Roma 2, Juventus 2, Milan 3, Roma 3. Napoli 4, Roma 0, Atalanta 4, Roma 1, Roma 2, Inter 2, Juve 2, Roma 0, Roma 1, Milan 1, and not forgetting Lazio 3, Roma 0. So that's eight games they've played this season against what I would call sort of top four rivals. They haven't won any. They've drawn three, lost five. In those games, they've scored nine goals, conceded 22. So that's not a lack of talent. There's quite a strong squad. Certainly a squad that can match an Atalanta or a Lazio at least. Um, mm. There's something mentally either in terms of sort of mental toughness or resilience or in match preparation. Or there's something they're not quite doing here. And I've said that a few times before. I, th- I don't think Paolo Fonseca is the guy to, to get them over that hurdle. There's something not right. I don't think they believe when they go in and play an inter- inter- a UV. I just don't think they believe that they can win. And now mm. dropped into fifth. Uh, Napoli behind us with, with a game in hand. Um, they could join us on 47 points. Uh, luckily, Lazio are a little bit further behind, but we're at the stage now where we'll be lucky to be top four. Um, we're in November, December time, and we're sitting second. So, you're yeah. right, it is worrying, I think, Fonseca, if he does last the season. Um, if he finishes top four, he might get the start of next season, maybe. But if he finishes uh, fifth or sixth, then I think he'll be gone in the summer, yeah. I think what's alarming for Roma is the form of Atalanta of late. So on Saturday, they beat Sampdoria 2-0 away. But then last night, they beat Crotone 5-1. Granted, that's the kind of match that you expect them to win, um, especially as they go into the weekend playing the Bergamo Classic, which is Inter Milan. So um, going to be interesting to see how that plays out. In other results, though, we had Juventus again slip up. They drew one all with Verona. Um, quite a bit of a surprise there. We also saw uh, Lazio lose to Bologna on Sunday 2-0. Chiro Mobile missing a penalty there as well. Um, But yeah, looking at yesterday's results, Sassuolo kicked it off with a 3-0 draw against Napoli. A question relating to Napoli as well. So Craig, get your thoughts on this. But uh, someone asked us, um, does Piotrzelinski need to leave Napoli this summer to be considered a world-class player and more importantly to get out of the shithole that is Napoli? Um, yeah, 
I can give a bit of context from a Polish point of view, but uh, get your thoughts in terms of do you think Zelinski is ready to kind of make himself kind of known to the stage now because he's certainly doing the performances this year? He is, and I think he's a he's a Champions League grade player. So if Napoli don't qualify for the Champions League and are finishing fifth or sixth, or, you know, God forbid, even seventh, and they're not in Europe at all, it'd be a waste. And I think players like him um, would be looking at that thinking, you know, I really want to be playing European football. I think it probably is is right. I think he's a, a kind of mainstay in the, the national team anyway. So I don't think he needs to move for that reason. But in terms of sort of taking the next step and playing year in, year out Champions League football, uh, it looks like Napoli were that club three years ago when you went mm. through sort of the, the Sarri-Ancelotti era. Um, they're not that club anymore. And I think if he wants to be you know, regarded as one of the top players in Europe, then a move probably is maybe right this summer, yeah. It'd be interesting. I mean, certainly from a Polish perspective, he's got essence and, you know, traits that kind of, I don't know, best way to describe it, but he's got the potential to be that level. Um, I feel like he is just lacking that big match experience right now. And maybe that move would be beneficial for him. But the problem I would say is, who's going to spend that kind of money because Napoli aren't going to let him go off for cheap. Um, so this is the big question is who is financially in a good enough position to kind of bring him into their squad. And I know Liverpool have been quoted for a number of seasons, but I can't see that happening this year. That's for sure. Um, but let's yeah. move on to the current leaders of Serie A, which is Inter Milan. So they won 3-0 against Genoa on Sunday. Great result for them, guys. But more importantly, guys, obviously there's Intergate or Sunningate. So um, it appears financially Inter are going to be in for a difficult period going into the next 18 months. So um, their owners um, basically have had their club closed down in China. Um, they're reported to be £300 million in debt. And they have been looking at externals to kind of invest into the club. Um, but also the problem is, if anyone wants to take them over, the owners actually value them at £1 billion. Um, and they've defaulted on a number of loans as well, apparently. So ultimately, it's going to be very difficult for Inter Milan, especially given that they don't own the ground. They've got really the only playing squad as assets right now. And I'd probably reflect in saying, with the exception of a few of their players, a lot of that squad is aging as well. So it's going to be very difficult to kind of make that capital to maybe help out the club right now. I think what's helping them right now is obviously the financial position that if they do win the Scudetto, then obviously they're potentially going to be in Champions League spot at least, and that money will flood through. Um, but there are bigger question marks around their future. So if I start off with yourself, Craig, is this kind of alarming or is this to be expected because we are in COVID conditions right now and, you know, it's just a red herring for everyone right now? No, it's it's more than COVID. It's quite alarming. So the holding company, Suning, um, for those listeners who are not aware, they're a sort of massive retail giant out in China, um, own a lot of retail stores out there, but they've been making losses year on year and, and sort of COVID sort of, of worsened that. The problem with Suning is the Chinese government have bought a massive portion of the company as part of a sort of bailout. And they've been instructed quite forcefully to stop concentrating and stop funding football teams and start funding your day-to-day -day retail operations, which is why the Chinese champions, 
were essentially disbanded overnight. Basically yeah. told on a Sunday morning, like, yeah, there's no club anymore. I don't think that will happen to Inter Milan. They're looking at different investors. I know there's a, a private equity company in London that are looking at investment. But it is, it is very, very worrying. And you have to look at this Inter Milan squad. You're right, there is an aging population there. But if sort of Bastoni's, Barella's, Hakimi's, um, Martinez, those type of really sellable assets, I think the pro will be looking to sell some of those this summer. At least, you're right, the Champions League brings, I think it's about 40, 50 million euros for the group stages, which will help, but it's not enough to cover cover that. And you're absolutely right, a, a ludicrous valuation of, of £1 billion pounds or euros, whatever it is, it's, it's an incredible valuation. Mm. And there's no one who's going to come in and just throw that money down the table, particularly in this, this financial climate. And Andy, you shared the fact that even the Lukaku transfer fee hasn't been kind of paid up as, a, as of yet. Um it is kind of alarming that we're going to have potentially a lot of transfer fees like that going further forward where, you know, they're not being fulfilled. So right now, um, would you take him back at Man United or would you kind of just ride the waves and hope you get the remaining amount for your transfer fee? Um, well, there's an interesting one because I think it's not just Lukaku uh, that's that apparently into our money for. It's Hakimi as well. And they've not apparently not even made the first instalment of um, that either. Um, so the Irish are trouble, and also the um, Sunning as well. I think you know we probably all read the same article. <laughs> um, they've um, it's the subject of a court case as well because they spent three hundred odd million pounds on rights to like you know the Premier League and stuff like that to show over in Asia, and apparently that fell through, and they've been chasing money there as well. Um, and I think that just highlights a danger of what happens where you get. Um, state-funded or heavy state involvement in in a football club, because uh, you know you've got the example of Manchester City where everything go everything's going swimmingly, uh, and everything's all geared towards making the football club brilliant. Uh, but for every Manchester City, there's you know someone like you know like Inter, um, and they've got big trouble. You know they owe apparently there's about fifty million pounds still owed, and because they've missed an instalment. There is a clause in there that apparently entitles United to demand the rest of the fee up front straight away. Um, so I think, you know, United, I think, obviously, because they're losing a lot of money, I think £2.5 million per match day for not having fans there. So I think there are, there are the ego, well, we want the money. Or, you know, if they were smart, which they're not, uh, they would go, actually, why don't we just have one of your players instead? It can, if, if fifty million pound is still owed for Lukaku, then they can go. Well, okay, we'll have you know, we'll we'll have Latoura Martinez on the cheap. We'll have Barella on the cheap. We'll have you know, Skriniar on the cheap. Like, <laughs> you know, Bastoni on the cheap. Because uh, it could open up those kind of conversations as well. We'll write off your money that you owe, but we want one of your players. Um, you know, same with Akimi. I think a lot of Madrid fans. You know, I watched him a little bit for Dortmund last year. He was absolutely electric. I think a lot of Madrid fans will go, okay, we'll have him back then. Um, so I think they're going to win. I think they'll win the league this year, but it's at what cost? And in terms of the, I do find the equity argument interesting because the whole point of a private equity firm is the reason why they invest money is in the hope of making three, four times of that money back over the course of a year. You know, if I was uh, into Milan, I went to Dragon's Den, I'd go, right, I want you to give me £1 billion for 10% equity in my business. And you go, 
well, what am I going to get back in return? Nothing, but you own a bit of Inter Milan. <laughs> they'll, t- they'll tell you to do one. And this is obviously on a much, much bigger scale. Um, so, yeah, the investment is going to have to come from someone with money to burn and happy to lose even more money in the future. Um, and I think with the COVID times, um, that is less likely to happen. I'll show you, you know, an example that you might not necessarily know about. So one of the new um, expansion teams going into the MLS um, are in a bit of trouble because their billionaire owner has pulled out um, due to um, concerns over coronavirus. So I don't think it would be as easy as if some people might think to find that investment into our one of the world's biggest clubs, you know, historically. So they're more likely to than they're not, but they could have a difficult summer ahead of them, it's fair to say. I feel sorry for our friend Tommy. I'm sure he'll be shitting himself right now. But yes, we move away from Intergate to Germany and we find ourselves with another gate, which is Schalke Gate. So um, yeah, Schalke, our favourites on the pods, obviously lost 5-1 to Stuttgart. Um, And if the result itself wasn't bad enough, they made the decision to uh, sack Christian Gross, but not just Christian Gross. They also sacked four other key backroom staff members, which included sporting director and head of performance. Um, Rumours have kind of come about saying that Gross has been very outdated with his techniques. He spoke different languages to different players. He also modelled up their names or also mispronounced them. Uh, and it seems to be um, shared that it's been instigated by the likes of Huntelaar, Mustafi and Kolasinac in terms of raising it to the hierarchy. But yeah, Schalke now find themselves having to search for their fifth manager for the season. They currently like nine points from safety with 11 games left. And Craig, we'll start off with yourself. Obviously, a big game against Mines uh, on Friday night. Um, yeah. I think words fail us here, but there's nothing else to say apart from um, good luck to Schalke for next season, right? Yeah, the game, the game at the weekend means a lot more to Mainz than it does to Schalke. Schalke are are down, they're done, uh, and have been for a long time. They've won one game this season and and had one even before that. In, in some ways, I think it's almost almost a good thing for Schalke. They're, they're absolutely going down. They should be preparing for life in, in this Vita Bundesliga and they need a clear out. It's clearly rotten. Whoever, I don't know the, the name of the gentleman who was the sporting director, but he's clearly done a piss poor job. Um, Christian Gross was a dinosaur before he came in, and you're absolutely right. Apparently, he didn't know the names of opposition players, and the, the pre, pre game tactics meetings were, were abysmal by all accounts. And it was Clash on Huntelaar and Klasinic who apparently went to the Schalke advisory board and said, Get this guy the fuck out of here. This is shocking. So he's gone now. Uh, it'll be their fifth manager, someone to, to take over until the end of the season to see it out now. But it's probably a good thing that they, they start planning now for, for next season. But, like you said, good luck to Schalke because it's not an easy league to get out of. It's not quite as difficult as the English Championship, but it's not yeah. too far off. So we've seen big, big clubs like Stuttgart have gone down. Yeah. A while ago, it took a long time to come back up. Hamburg are still trying to get back up. So historically, big, big teams who have found it really difficult to come back out. Um, the sponsor, um, I read this week, Gazprom, who are worth about €20 million Euros a year. They are not obliged to sponsor them in the, the second division. 
So that's a massive financial penalty they're going to get from that. Uh, and apparently they're going to have to cut their wage bill by about half. So there will be a mass exodus. There will be some bargains to be had from the Schalke team. Um, and they should just start preparing for life now. But you know, credit to them um, for doing that. I think they've done the right thing now. Just get rid of him. If he's not adding value or, or adding any sort of progress, then just cut the cut the cord. And, you know, yeah, best of luck next season, guys. And while we stick with it, obviously there's a number of teams that are involved into that kind of relegation battle. So um, the likes of Armenia Belfields are still in that mix, as are Hertha Berlin, who are being dragged into it as weeks go by. So they're on level points with Armenia Belfield. And obviously I mentioned about Mainz. They are on 17 points as it stands. Armenia Belfield, Hertha Berlin on 18. And just above them is Cologne on 21 points. So Craig, you wanted to speak specifically about Hertha Berlin because, again, that's a big name that potentially could be dragged into it. Um, they've got players like Piontek, for example, um, and they are bankrolled by, by all means, a millionaire who is trying to get a big club that, like established within Berlin. But it seems to be Union Berlin that seems to be pulling all the strings right now. So, yeah, is there a concern that Hertha Berlin could be another club that's dragged into that mix right now? Yeah, in, in a way, Hertha Berlin being relegated is almost a bigger story than Schalke in mm. some ways. When you look at the table now, you've got Mainz down there, who are always, always down there fighting. Bielefeld came up last season, Kloon are always down there, Augsburg are down there. You know, no real surprises, but Hertha's a, a massive surprise, and you're right, they do have very well with the owners. By all accounts, they've sunk about 250 million euros over the last seven or eight years into the club to make them that big city club. They're really, really struggling. They sacked um, sporting director Michel Preetz and manager Bruno Labbadia at the beginning of this season. Um, and it's not really clicking either. And they are, like I said, they're, they're levelling points with Bielefeld below them. That's for the playoff space in Germany. They do a relegation playoff. And that's that's an absolutely shocking job that's happening there. They need to snap out of this quickly. I, I would say they've probably got a better squad than the teams around them. And you would see on paper they should be okay. But in this season of all seasons... You know, you never say never. And the, the recruitment policy seems to be very sort of football manager type. Just go out and get decent players without any real plan of cohesion. And it's coming back to bite them in the ass. But keep an eye out for the, the Bundesliga relegation spots because if they slip into that, that's an enormous story in Germany. Definitely. And that's the reason why we started off at the bottom because actually there wasn't too much that happened at the top of the table. Um Dortmund continued to have a really good run, um, beat Armenia Belfield 3-0. Bayern Munich won 5-1 against Cologne. Uh, Wolfsburg also beat Hertha Berlin, which is why we brought that up. But the biggest, I suppose, result was Leipzig beating Mönchengladbach in a crazy match because initially they'd gone 2-1 behind and brought it back to 3-2. Again, that's another match that both myself and Craig watch. Um, Leipzig, Craig out of this world. They brought it back from the dead as well. Yeah, and I was I was talking to you in the last 50 minutes of that game and I said, this is why no one will win the fucking Bundesliga. This is why it's <laughs> shit. Because every, all teams just slip up. This is why Bayern are going to win it. And I had a right, a right rant about it and then all of a sudden Leipzig scored in the last two minutes and you're thinking, oh, fucking, the title's <laughs> back on. Brilliant finish to the game. Gladbach, beating Gladbach's probably not a, a bigger surprise as it used to be. But that's, you know, you look back at, at Championship winning sides and they do pull victories like that out. So Leipzig sat two points behind now. It's probably the most uncomfortable Bayern Munich have been in what, 18 months, potentially. Yeah. Um, it looks like Leipzig are going to go out of Europe this weekend. Um, so next week against Liverpool. 
Bayern Munich will go deep in the competition. So you just don't know if, if Leverkusen, if Leipzig have got a full week to prepare for games and Bayern Munich are playing twice a week. You never know, it might start to tell against an already sort of leggy Bayern Munich team, but I'm delighted actually, I'm, I'm really, really happy that we're going to get a proper Bundesliga title race that could go down to the last five or six games at least. And Frankfurt, a team that seemed to be doing so well up until last weekend where they lost 2-1 against Werder Bremen, that'll be very disappointing for Frankfurt. Um, but let's move on to the other gates that happened in Spain. And that was prison gates for a certain <laughs> ex-president right now. Um, ironically, happens to be around the time that a presidency race is happening right now. So it's um, bound to happen on Sunday, I believe. Um, and the favourite is Jean Laporta, who is the ex-Barcelona president. Almost feels like it's an underline against the previous regime. I thought I'd be talking to you guys about how Barcelona are planning to bring Arteta um, but actually, Andy, you shared the news that broke on Monday and um, quite a surprise, especially in terms of what he's been arrested for. So, Andy, if we start off with yourself, can you just fill in the listener around what he's allegedly being um, detained or jailed potentially? Because it's not just him, is it? There's a number of other people involved in this. Yeah, so most of the charges relate to financial mismanagement. I think it's probably the blanket term you could use for it. Uh, the biggest, you know, thing is that they've overpaid on these for services, uh, such as paying, you know, to like a million pounds of PR agencies to, um, you know, publish negative stories about the players. You know, they denied that. Um, it was them. Oh, it was nothing to do with us. Uh, they did like an internal audit, uh, which again, they were like, oh, nothing to do with us. Uh, but obviously, there is more to it than that. Um, so, you know, their sort of financial crimes unit have, have come in. You know, it's, it's, apparently it's the second time they've seen documentation at the stadium. Um, you know, but they've also made, you know, arrests as well. Um, I think Barton was arrested at his home. Uh, so there's obviously more to it because, uh, you know, the police have gone in there and started taking over documents. You know, they're £800 million in debt. You know, the board members have resigned. There's the PR stuff, paying PI agency. You know, there's obviously a lot of money that has gone AWOL. Um, and it looks like um, there's people who, who want explanations for it. Um, so I think... If it feels just a case of a PR company being paid a little bit too much money than they should have been, that'd be one thing. But the scale of the operation that it is, I think it could be quite an eye-opener in the future. And Craig, just to get your thoughts on this uh, prison gates situation that's happening in Barcelona. Obviously, I'm sure the fans will be glad when this is all over, but... Um, it kind of does think of a lot of uh, bureaucracy that seems to be happening during Bartomeu's reign. Yeah, it does. I think one thing the Barcelona fans can take sort of comfort is that it doesn't affect the current board, the current team or any of the elections going forward. So it is very much a historical thing. But Andy said it's just weird. It's a company called i3 Ventures, which is a PR company which ran negative stories about Piquet, Xavi, Messi, ran favourable stories about Bartomeu. And they've also they've, they've um, paid them six times the market rate. So it's almost like Bartomeu was bribing a PR company to 
make himself look good and then, you know, slag off some of his best players. I just don't get it. It's just strange. And I think the, the quote I read was, criminal misdemeanor of improper management, which is a fantastic phrase. I might start using that myself, actually. <laughs> I've got a brilliant turn of phrase. But it's just the last thing we need. At a time when Barcelona are starting to pick up some pace in the league. So they started to play well. They beat Sevilla, which was a shock to me. They put Sevilla yeah. again out of the Copa del Rey last night. So starting to, you know, not prime vintage Barca, but starting to just chug along. Real Madrid are faltering a little bit. Um, and this is just another distraction that they just don't need. Yeah, absolutely. And Andy, on the thoughts of Arteta potentially going to Barcelona, I think that's probably maybe a Laporta idea of he's learning from Pep Guardiola. He, you know, as far as I understand, he is an ex-Barcelona youth player as well. So obviously he'll fit in with the Catalan kind of culture right now. Um, what do we think? Do you think he'd be a great fit to replace Kuman, or do you think actually they should just hold out for Xavi? I mean, if they fancy sort of winning a cup and then descending into a mid-table side, then they're welcome to crack on with it. Um, no, I think Arteta's done a good job in some ways. Um, he's obviously a very, you know, he's sort of like the, a, football, a football hipster favourite. He has very, very clear ideas on his philosophy and how he wants to play the game. Um, and, you know, that kind of fits in with how, you know, the, the sort of the Barcelona way, you know, he's learned under Pep Guardiola. So I think he'd be a good sort of philosophical fit for them. Um, but I think it's too soon in his career to be at that stage. I think he'd, he'd be best advised sticking it out to Arsenal, putting together a body of work, you know, because going to Barcelona manager as somebody who's won a couple of major trophies and, you know, done one in the league, you get a, that'll give you a lot more respect from the players than if you don't put Arsenal into mid-table and you've just been dropped in because you like to play out from the back. Uh, like Tiki Taka, it's, um, yeah, it needs it needs another two or three, four years before you could even think about getting a job like that. Um, you know, say with Ronald Koeman, he might not have been that successful, but he's had numerous years in the management um, you know, and it, there seems to be this thing of, oh, because Pep was able to do it, everybody can do it, and it's not the case. Um, you know, and he was only there as a youth player. He didn't actually spend any of his real senior career actually playing there. So it is debatable how much of an influence he would actually have. Um, you know, at least with Koeman, he is like a playing legend at Barcelona. Um, he does seem to be turning it around, but yeah, it's... He's not put together a body of work in any way, shape, or form that would make that would make you look and go, he'd be fun, he'd be perfect for the Barcelona job. He's best off trying to, you know, stick where he is, and hope if he gets some success, wins some trophies of Arsenal, gets in the top four, then maybe it's worth revisiting that conversation. So we'll move on to our final point, which is Scotland. So, uh, Craig, question for you: uh, When does Craig anticipate to be in God's country to celebrate? 55. I, as soon as lockdown's finished, mate, so I haven't seen my family since August. So as soon as lockdown's finished, I don't understand quite yet what the rules are. Um, the 12th of May, sorry, 12th of April, whether that's I can go to Scotland or not. But as soon as the government say the borders are open on you go, son, I'll be, I'll be in the car and going straight up there. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be, I'll be up as soon as I can. 
good man, good man. But yes, let's cover off Rangers. Uh, we gave too much love for the Celtic contingent apparently last week. Um, so I do apologise for our Rangers listeners uh, last week. Um, but yes, Alfredo Buffalo more or less tapped in a winner against Livingston, um, singing Sweet Caroline with his top off, according to yep. Stevie Gerrard. Um, but Craig, you're going to share with us that the title is pretty much sewn up potentially this weekend, right? As there's a there's a scenario whereby if we win on Saturday afternoon, we reach 88 points. Um, Celtic have seven games left, and the most they can hope to achieve is also 88 points. So the gap in goal difference is also 27 goals. So Celtic, if we win on Saturday afternoon. Celtic would have to win their last seven games and overturn a 27-goal goal difference. You also have to bear in mind that two of their last seven games are against us. So that is that is not going to happen. It is not going to happen. So a win against Marin at home on Saturday would all but clinch the title uh, mathematically. Uh, I think that's probably when I will start, start celebrating. <laughs> I think on Saturday afternoon, if we win that game, we'll see the Union Jack bowler hats out, the CBG Yardmaster will come out, the champagne will be on ice. And that's when I'll start celebrating. But that was a you're right, that game last night was huge. I watched it really, really tense because the players really knew what was at stake and we were denied an absolute stonewall penalty. It was so bad. Stephen Gerrard got sent off at half time. Um he told the referee the referee was fucking bang out of order. It was that <laughs> bad. Um Morelos got booked for it, which we've obviously appealed. We had a goal rightly called offside. Um and Livingston just sat in two banks of five and we, we battered them. The last parts of the game, and then for Morelos to take that tap in uh, was just was just so sweet. And you see Tavernier and Morelos hugging each other at the end, and it just yeah, it just makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And if we win this game, potentially win it. I, I know that Celtic put out a tweet today, an interview with their vice captain Callum McGregor, and he said in the interview we're really focused on winning on uh, at Dundee on Sunday. And the replies to the tweets were like, "Don't fucking bother. We better not win this game." Just lose the game and wrap it up, maybe because they do not want to see us go to Parkhead on the twenty first, because all we need is a draw there. All we need is a draw at Parkhead and we'll win it there. So I think they're quite Celtic are now at the stage of acceptance where they will be more than happy to lose the league this weekend, and hopefully we can oblige. Interesting. We'll see how those results pan out over the weekend. But just before we kind of go into part two, I kind of wanted to touch on the bottom side of the SPL because. It's not something we'd regularly talk about, but I did notice that it's very similar to the Bundesliga in the sense that it's very tight right now at the bottom. So um, for a number of weeks, obviously, Motherwell were in that mix, but they seem to have bought themselves out of it. However, it just needs two bad results and they could be dragged into it. But at the bottom, as it stands, Hamilton lie with 17 points. Then we've got Kilmarnock on 20 uh, points, which obviously is a bit of a surprise given how Kilmarnock started last season compared to this season. And then you've got Ross County who seems to have pulled themselves out. Maybe it's that Celtic result that's helped them galvanise. Um, but yeah, just briefly, Craig, from your point of view, um, how is that looking and who do you fancy being in that mix come the end of the season? So Ross County and Hamilton were the two that were, one of the two were definitely going to go down this year. And, and Hamilton are one of those clubs, kind of like a, a Bournemouth or a Watford that, circled the sort of the plug of relegation for a long, long time. Everyone's just waiting for Hamilton to go down. Uh, Ross County are, are probably the second worst team in Scotland, to be honest, although they have beaten Celtic <laughs> twice this year. Um, 
So it was always one of those two. The real surprise is Kilmarnock. Now, you'll remember that Steve Clark got the Scotland job off the back of a really, really good time at Kilmarnock, and he got Kilmarnock in Europe. Mm. So 18 months ago, they were a Europe, well, European qualifiers side team, finished third in the league, and their, their drop-off has been dramatic. They had then Alex Dyer, who was Steve yeah. Clark's assistant. Um, he, he was in this season. He resigned, wasn't doing particularly well, and they are really, really struggling. And, you know, Scotland does the same as the Bundesliga, where it's a relegation playoff, so bottom team goes straight down. Uh, and the team that finished 11th, they play in the relegation playoff, so Kilmarnock need to get their finger out, pick up a couple of wins, um, and then get there. But like Hertha, I would say Kilmarnock have probably got on paper a better squad than either Hamilton or Ross County. And you would think that they will eventually do it. What will help them is, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware, after 32 games in Scotland, the league splits. Mm-hmm. You have a championship group, a relegation group. So Kilmarnock, although the results haven't been great, they've got a not bad squad for this level. And you would think that when they don't have to play Rangers, Hibs, Celtic anymore, and they can start playing the teams around them, I would fancy Kilmarnock to probably pick up enough points to pull themselves clear. If I had to put money on it, I would say Hamilton automatic relegation and then Ross County in the playoff would be my where my money would be. And I must apologise to the listener. I was actually reading those stats wrong. So actually it's Hamilton and Kilmarnock both on 25 points and Ross County on 26. So that's how tight it actually is in that bottom three right now. Right, let's move on to part two. So, Craig, fill in the listener around the fixtures that are happening this weekend. Yep, so we'll start off on Friday night. Like you said, a huge game uh, at the bottom of the Bundesliga. Schalke play Mainz at half past seven. Uh, and then Valencia versus Villarreal at eight o'clock. That's the only two real games on Friday. Saturday, you've got Burnley versus Arsenal at half past 12. Gladbach versus Leverkusen, two sides that are really, really struggling for form. That's at half past two. Picked out a few games at 3 o'clock. Rangers at home to St Mirren. Sheffield United, Southampton. Stoke versus Wickham. Uh, the Der Klassiker. Uh, so you've got Bayern Munich versus Dortmund at half past seven. Villa versus Wolves uh, also on Saturday afternoon. Juventus versus Lazio. Quarter to eight uh, on Saturday. Also soon out host Barcelona. Brighton versus Leicester. And then Brest versus PSG. That's the two eight o'clock games on Saturday night. And then to Sunday, the early game, Roma versus Genoa. Uh, you've got Dundee United versus Celtic. Now, I don't usually talk about Celtic, but if we win that game on Saturday, I will definitely watch that. Probably <laughs> hungover. Uh, West Brom versus Newcastle. Again, not a game I would usually watch, but that's sort of taken on a whole new meaning uh, with Newcastle's recent form. Verona versus AC Milan. Liverpool versus Fulham. Uh, and Fiorentina versus Parma, all at two o'clock. We've got the Madrid derby, quarter past three. The Manchester derby at four o'clock. Spurs versus Palace at quarter past seven. And then Napoli versus Bologna at quarter to eight. Uh, and then into Monday, another couple of big games. We've got Chelsea versus Everton, six o'clock. Inter versus Atalanta at quarter to eight. West Ham versus Leeds and Nice versus Monaco, both at eight o'clock. And then, of course, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week, see the return of the European football. So we've got the return legs of Dortmund versus Sevilla and Juve versus Porto on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we've got Liverpool, Leipzig, PSG versus Barcelona. So... Yeah, an action-packed seven days, really, of football. You can take your pick from that. Yeah, I don't know which ones really kind of are the big ones right now, but I think for me, from a German Bundesliga point of view, Bayern Munich versus Dortmund seem to be a big match, potentially, to see how that pans out, especially given that Leipzig are way to Freiburg. I expect, obviously, Leipzig to win that. So, yeah, depending on the form that Dortmund can actually produce against Munich, we know traditionally it's kind of very hit and miss, depending on what Dortmund side decide to turn up, but I fancy potentially them getting even a draw 
which could be just enough to kind of dismantle it. Um, Andy, what about your thoughts going into this derby? Big match, right? But do you think Solskjaer is going to play it safe and just play out a draw? Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, <laughs> like, that's, it's got nil-nil written all over it. And uh, I think the only way that game is going to be live with up is, is if um, somebody scores an early goal. Yeah. Because um, if, yeah, if, if, if we get to about 60 minutes and nobody's scored, then I think both teams are going to sort of subconsciously drop back a little bit. Um, you know, they're not, it's one of those like, Last season, we got beaten a lot of games against the likes of like Crystal Palace and all that kind of stuff, and we're just drawing. But yeah, I think it, I don't think it'll be an entertaining game unless there's some action in the first half. That's kind of my take on it. Right, we we'll move into the end of the show. Um, so it's been our second video pod, lads. Um, a lot of still positives from that. Um, and if you haven't already seen Andy's apology to Belgium strikers from South London, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's definitely worth a laugh just to watch that alone. And if you've enjoyed the episode or just generally the series so far, please do us a favor and review and subscribe to the pods. So without further ado, thanking you, Andy and Craig. Hope you two have a good weekend. We'll find out next weekend, that's for sure. Thank you. And wishing the listener a very good weekend or week when they listen to this. Without further ado, thank you and goodbye. Thank you.